Good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, excited to, to get to study the word of the Lord this morning with y'all. If you'll turn to Malachi chapter 2, we're working our way through the book of Malachi. And we are going to go verse by verse through this book and try to understand the message of this prophet. And where we are in the, the time of the life of the people of Israel is that they have returned from exile. They've returned from captivity uh, in Babylon, and they have rebuilt the temple, and they have rebuilt the wall, and they are under Persian rule. And the general feel of the people of Israel at this time, when you're studying this time period, and when you're studying the prophets that are speaking to them, is if you've ever been, if you grew up in a town or have been around a town, lived in an area where there used to be industry, but there isn't any more. There used to be a textile mill. They used to build cars. They used to have a coal mine, but they don't anymore. That's in general how Israel feels at this point. There are people here and they're existing, but that's kind of all they're doing. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of life. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of joy. They've returned, but they're still under rule of the Persians. They've rebuilt the temple, but it's not like the temple they had. They have a wall. They have a city, but it's not like the city they had. And in general, the whole thing just feels like they're sleepwalking through Existence, And that's where we are, and that's where Malachi takes up his prophetic message. And he's the last prophet in the Old Testament to speak before we're going to see John the Baptist and Jesus several hundred years later. And so he's correcting and speaking on behalf of God. He has six disputes. The first one is that God loves them. But they don't feel it, and they don't act like it, and they don't seem to know it. But he's correcting them that he loves them, but they're not behaving correctly. And then... He starts correcting the priests, and so we're picking up with that in chapter 2 with the back half of his correction of the priests. And what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to take this, we're going to understand it in its context, we're going to try to understand what he's actually saying to the priests here, but then we're going to try to see how we might apply this correction of the priesthood to us, and we're going to see that when you translate the, the idea of a priesthood into the New Testament, it comes out in a few different ways. And so we're going to take some time this morning to talk specifically to pastors and church leadership. So I'll be preaching to myself some this morning. And boy, am I going to give myself some amens, I tell you. <laughs> and then I'll get real convicted. No, but <laughs> preach to, to pastors this morning. And then to the church in general, because the Christian church is a priesthood. And then we're going to talk about Christ, who is the great high priest. And so we're going to walk through those three things after we try to understand it in its context. So if you will, pray with me as we begin this morning. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the spirit that indwells us, that helps us to understand your word and leads us in obedience. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move and work and convict and encourage this morning and that you would help us to understand rightly what this teaches so that we might live in fear and awe of you and that Christ might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, and now, O priests, this command is for you. So he's about to give a command, and we know who it's to. It's to the, the priest. Now, this priesthood, which is also going to be referred to as Levi in this chapter, is the Levitical priest. It's a whole tribe of Israel 
that was blessed with the priesthood. When they uh, divvied up the land, the Levites did not get a portion of the land. They did not get an inheritance. All the other tribes got an inheritance, but Levi was scattered in little places all over, and then they were given the care of the temple. They were the ones who would stand as priests in service to the Lord and on behalf of the people, and they would rotate. So you would live wherever you lived, kind of in one of the other tribes. And then you would rotate to temple service. We see this in Luke with John the Baptist's dad. He rotates in and does his temple service, and then he goes back to where he lived. And so that's how this would work. And so we're talking to the priests or the Levites, as he's going to call them later. That's who he's correcting. And what they're doing now is they had a temple. They were performing their daily sacrifices and their ministry, but they were doing it half-heartedly. It says, this is the command, if you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. So the command that's kind of buried in the middle there is take it to heart to give honor to my name. That's what the priests were supposed to be doing. It was supposed to be genuine, true love, worship, and honor to the Lord, and it was supposed to, they were to take it to heart. And they were to be the first ones. They were the ones who didn't get an allotment. Their, their inheritance was the Lord. That's what it actually says. He says, I'm their inheritance. The, the blessing was him, that they would have him, that they would love him, that they would know him. That was chief among it. God's blessing was on the whole of Israel, but he has this special portion for the Levites to get to minister to him and be in the temple. They're the only ones who can enter certain places. They're the ones that get to serve him in this unique way. They get to participate and take part in some of the sacrifices. And they were to be the first ones to honor the Lord. Have you ever gone with somebody to their mama's house or grandmama's house? It's like a group of friends and y'all are about to go in or you're dating them, you're about to go in and they just stop and say, okay, hold up. When we go in here, you're going to take your shoes off. You're going to take your hat off. You're going to say, yes, ma'am. She's going to offer you food. You're going to eat it. You're going to tell her it tastes good. And the best is when they start telling you things you're not allowed to bring up. Like, just fun. Like, it's, you're always just like, I have questions. They're like, don't talk about LeBron James. And it's just like, why? I want to now. Like, what do you, why, why can't I bring him up? Like, well, they just pick things. Or they might tell you, like, a whole political party you're just not allowed to mention inside this house. Like, just don't bring it up. But the reason is, that's their grandmother. And they're taking the first step in honoring. And if you don't want to, they don't care you're going to, or you're not going to be welcome in this house. That's how it works. They're, it, they're primary. You ought to, but if you're not going to, they're going to make sure you do. That's the way the Levites were supposed to be with the Lord. We read last week where people are bringing lame sacrifices. The, the, their legs don't work. They're bringing uh, goats that don't that aren't worth anything. They're bringing blind sacrifices or ones that have scabs and problems that they couldn't sell anywhere. And when they're bringing them up there, they should have brought a good one. But when they got to the door, the Levites should have said, well, don't get this out of here. How dare you profane the name of the Lord with that? They should be the ones who are taking it to heart to honor the Lord, but they aren't. And so he says, if you won't, I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Now that cursing of their blessings is a broad 
We should understand that in, in a broad way. Because they're blessed to be the people, to be the Levites, to be the priests. And there were certain blessings that came along with that, that they got to participate in the sacrifices, that they got to uh, take in the tithes, that they were provided for by the people of Israel. And so he's saying, in general, the blessings over Israel are going to fall apart. The blessings to your tribe are going to fall apart. And one of the things that the Levites did was they pronounced blessings so that when you came and, and there was a sacrifice, then they would bless you. They would speak on behalf of the Lord to send you out in, in a blessing. And he's saying, I'm undoing all of that. Your blessings are cursed. It's going to work backwards now. And then he says in verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. Rebuke is a sharp correction. I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Whew. Now, just to us, that sounds just rough. That's a, you, don't want, you don't want the Lord to say that to you. And whenever you're in an issue and you're not doing well and the rebuke goes beyond you to your children, like you want to get an argument amped up, just bring people's kids involved. Like, I mean, he's going to rebuke the whole line of the Levites. But when he says, I'm going to put dung on your faces, he's talking about a specific thing. It says, the dung of your offerings and you should be taken away with it. This is actually worse than it hits our ears. But the Levites would have understood exactly what he was talking about. When they had a sacrifice, the dung, as well as certain parts of the innards, and the overall carcass, there were parts that they kept and ate. There were parts that they applied to the sacrifice. And then there was a whole bunch of it that was called offal, O-F-F-A-L, offal. And it was carried outside and burned. And he says, that's where you're going. You're not going to be allowed in the temple. You're not going to be the chosen people who get to be here. You're going to be toted outside and burned. You're going to be toted outside and cast out. You're going to be part of the awful. That's what I'm about to do with the tribe of Levi. And for those who practice this temple sacrifice daily to be told you're becoming a part of awful, you're carried out. That, that hit them way harder than it just reads to us. This is a significant rebuke. He's saying, I'm getting rid of the tribe of Levi. I'm going to, you're not going to get to participate in this way. And this, but then they're, then he says something else that we have to try to figure out what he means because it, it drastically changes how we're supposed to understand what he's saying to them when he says, I'm going to cast you out in this way. Verse 4, he says, I'm doing this so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Okay that my covenant with Levi may stand. He says, I'm going to do this so that I can keep my covenant. Well, now it's really important for us to know two things. What is the covenant to Levi? And is it a conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant? Is there an if there? Like if your parents said, I'm going to take you to the zoo. And then you were acting up and they said, hold on, I got to keep my promise to you. It's like, yeah, but the promise was I'm going to take you to the zoo. But if your parents said, I'm going to take you to the zoo, if you get your stuff done, 
That's a conditional. You see the difference between conditional and unconditional. The question is, is God going to keep this promise no matter what? Is he promising that I'm going to overcome your sin and make this good? Or is he saying, I'm going to hold to my end of the bargain and cast you out because you failed? It's important for us to know, how is he keeping this covenant? We also need to know, what is the covenant to Levi? What is the covenant to the priesthood? So look at verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. So it was a blessing. The promise he made to him was of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. So God's giving life and peace, and the people of Levi are to fear God, to respect him. It's to work the way that, like, parents and children are supposed to work, where there's life and peace and appropriate fear and respect. Like, you should fear your parents. You shouldn't look under your bed for them at night, like that kind of fear. Like, they're going to get you, but you should have respect and honor. It should have been like that. That's what he's saying. That was the way the covenant worked. And we've got to go back to the, uh, further back in the Old Testament, try to understand what is he referencing, because there are certain covenants, like the Mosaic covenant, it's very clear, and it's a conditional covenant. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you won't. Then there's covenants to to Abraham, which is a blessing that he's going to carry out. There's a covenant to David that he's going to carry out no matter what. He's just going to do that. So we've got to look and try to say, what's he talking about? There's a few places where it's hinted at and one place that gives us a little more clarity. So Exodus 32, 29. We just read this as we studied through Exodus. This is when the golden calf happens. He comes down. They're having a debaucherous party. And Moses says... Who's with me? And the Levites are part of his tribe. They say, we're with you. And then he says, get your sword and go kill people who have run away from the Lord. And then he looks at him afterwards and he says, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. This seems to be the first place where the Levites are being set apart for something specific. Then again, a similar situation happens in Numbers 25. And we're going to see a a man named Phineas, who as the people were running from the Lord, it says that he's jealous with the jealousy of the Lord, which is he turns them back to them. And he does this violently. Both of these situations are coming out of violence as people are running from the Lord. But it says this, Numbers 25, 10 through 13, and the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy because they're supposed to love and worship him and they were running after other things. Verse 12, therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And then we see this idea of this covenant mentioned in Jeremiah 33. He says this, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. All right? Pop quiz. Day and night still working? All right. That's what he anchors it to. Day and night get messed up because we changed the time? Yeah, that's on us, though. Day and night are still doing their thing. Just because your kids are waking up at 5 a.m. I'm mad, all right? Just, you know, they they don't. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) 
So what he says is it's an unconditional promise that he's going to work out in the people of Levi. So when he says, I'm going to cast you out, that my covenant may stand, we should all say, what? How does that work? I don't know. Okay. And we're going to get to see later how he accomplishes that. But that's what he's saying is that this, you're going to pay, but I'm going to keep my covenant. You're going to, you've corrupted this, you've messed this up, but I'm going to keep it. All right. As he keeps going, he's going to talk about what they should have been like and what they were like as priests. And then he's going to talk about how they messed it up. Verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth. So he already said it was a covenant of fear. He feared me. He stood in awe of my name, meaning that they trusted the Lord. They were following the Lord. And then he says, true instruction was in his mouth. He's talking about not just Levi the person. He's talking about the priests. He's made this promise to these people. So he's saying it like it's a singular person, but he's talking about the whole tribe. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. This is what the priesthood was supposed to look like. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." So what he says to the Levites is, you were supposed to trust me, love me, fear me, stand in awe of me. You were supposed to guard knowledge, give instruction, tell the truth, function impartially. You were supposed to be someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord, and you've corrupted all of that. And so now, instead of being elevated, you'll be debased and despised. And that's what he's saying to the people who are currently in the time of Malachi, serving as priests and running the temple without, without fear of the Lord and without care. Now, as we try to understand this passage, and we try to pull it forward to kind of where we are, we're going to take three ways to look at it. There are some things from the priesthood that apply to those who are pastors, teachers in the church, those who serve as elders, that, that apply in that way. There are some things that apply to the church in general, and there are some things that apply only to Christ. We, pastors now do not stand in between. We don't mediate between you and God. That's not how it works. That's how it worked then, that they had to go to a priest to get, but that's not how it works. But there are some things that he mentions in this passage, like teaching, instruction, that do apply as we try to understand what does it mean to be a pastor and what does that look like. So our church has four pastors. Myself, Raz Bradley, Matt Freeman, Spencer Carey. We are all elders is the official, elder or overseer is the official New Testament term. We just use pastor. It's one of the things you're supposed to do, but it's never used as a title in the Bible. But we have four pastors or four elders, and we're all pastor, elder. We're the same thing. So we don't have like a chief in charge pastor and other pastors. We're just four pastors or elders. We have one elder in training. His name is Isaac Hill which means that we are working in a process to install him as an elder. And we have seven men, not including Isaac, who's also going through pastor development. We have seven men who are in pastor development, which is we have men in our church who said, I'm interested, feel like I may be called to be a pastor. 
And we said, well, we want to help you figure that out. So they're in a thing called pastor development where we're trying to walk them through that. And since it's a list of seven, I wrote them all down so that I wouldn't just randomly forget one of them. I know all of these people and could give you all their names, but it would take me longer than it needs to. Jeremy Powell, Ryan Krebs, Brett Risher, Chris Rocky, Brian Petrie, George Garcia, and Mike Goebel are all in our pastor development process. So as I speak on this part right now, most of it applies directly to them. But some of you will not be at this church forever. Some of you will, and bless your heart. <laughs> but you're going to serve, you're going to belong here, you're going to labor with us, and you need to know what your pastors ought to look like. In a little while, we're going to say in front of our church family, uh, in a little while, Spencer said that was unclear and it would mean like, could mean 10 minutes from now. Uh, in the next year or so, we're going to say we're planning to install Isaac. And if anybody has any reason why he shouldn't be installed, you need to come talk to us. We're going to give you time to do that. But you need to understand what we're installing him to and what, what he's called to. And you need to know what to hold your pastors accountable to. Some of you are going to move. You're going to get another job. You're going to go to another school. And you're going to have to go find another church. And bless your heart. You need to know what pastors are supposed to look like, what that's supposed to be. So that's one of the reasons we're talking through this. But we also need to try to understand this in connection to what this passage is saying. So, verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Stepping into leadership in the church should begin with fear and awe. And that is usually, by God's blessing and goodness, where it starts. But you love the Lord. You fear him. You respect the Lord. You trust him. You're in awe of the fact that he would redeem a sinner like you. That's where it's supposed to start. If you are trying to question whether or not you should be a pastor and you're trying to figure it out, and it's not starting here, then I'm not sure you should be a pastor. If you're anchored in something other than how glorious our God is and how wonderful he is and how he redeems sinners and is so good, that's where it begins. And he's going to, this pairs well with what he says later. If you look down, it's not going to be on the screen, but it's in your Bible. If you have it, I'll read it. He says, you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble. You've corrupted the covenant. He says, you're showing partiality. You see, you're either going to pastor from a position of fearing the Lord, or you're going to pastor from a position of fearing people. There's a way to pastor where it's not about him, it's about you. There's a way to pastor where it's about fame, or being loved, or being appreciated, being liked. There's a way to pastor where it's about, you know, if I meet a person, I'm a pastor. If I meet someone and they say they're a pastor, my immediate thought is, you're either a really solid person or one of the worst people ever. But that's usually, I mean, you can be a pastor because it's an easy inside job. You can be a pastor because nobody really keeps up with your time. I can walk out of the office and say, I'm going to go work on sermon stuff, and I could do whatever the heck I wanted to. Nobody's GPS tracking me. But you ought to fear God because I'm going to have to stand before him later. That's terrible. All of our pastors, we're trying to hold each other accountable. We're trying to serve this church. But there's a way to pastor where you love the Lord and you love the church and you serve the Lord and you serve the church. And there's a way to pastor where you're serving yourself and it's about you. And Lord, have mercy on that day when you stand before him. 
This is where it begins. And it ought to stay there, but unfortunately, too often, it gets twisted and turns into something else. And we've seen it. We usually see it in high-profile cases where it's about money, where it's about fame, where it's about something else. But it can happen at any level, and it can happen in small ways, even in someone who's doing fairly good things for a local church. It can happen in your heart. There's a way to preach where it's really just about the way people respond rather than being faithful to the Lord and to the Bible. He keeps going, verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth. So we're going to walk through this section. Look at this. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. It means that good pastoring, good church leadership means you know your Bible. You study your Bible. You love your Bible. That's the way to have true instruction and no wrong come from your lips is that you're not just talking about what you think or feel, but you're talking about what the Bible says. And so you want your pastors to know their Bible. You want your pastors to submit to their Bible. And pastors in our church family, we need to know and love our Bibles. It's unacceptable for us not to. It says, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. Character matters immensely for leading and shepherding in the church. It matters immensely. That's a, in, in the New Testament, it's going to show up in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Peter's going to talk about it in 1 Peter 5. But some of the things that qualify for you for being a pastor doesn't list things like be smart, which is good. It doesn't list things like you have to be the most talented, the best. It says that you have to be, have character. And the truth is a lot of the pastors that we've seen that flame out are ones that their ability outpace their character. And that's dangerous. This is one of the reasons why we take installing someone into eldership in our church so slowly. Because character doesn't show up in a resume. It doesn't show up in an interview. It doesn't show up when someone preaches. Isaac preached recently, and people told me, they said, he did a really good job, and I think he did. But one of the reasons why we didn't just several years ago say, hop up there and preach, and we'll see if you can be a pastor, is because that's like way down the list of things that really matter. Your character matters immensely. Your love of the Lord matters immensely. Your knowledge of Scripture matters. That you would be someone who turns away from sin personally and takes very seriously that at the end of all this, you want Jesus more than you want anything else. There have been some pastors and church leaders that we found out a whole bunch of stuff after they died. There was no confession. There was no repentance. There was no hating of their sin. We found it out later, which means that they traded Jesus for ministry, and that's a terrible trade. You want people, if you're going to be a pastor and you want your pastors to be people who would trade in ministry, who would repent of sin, confess things, would walk away from it so that they might have Jesus. Because if I get to the end of this and all I ever had was this church, but I don't get Jesus because I hid things and I ran from, from being walking in the openness and I, and I chose sin rather than repentance. Okay. I might get disqualified someday. And Lord, help keep me from that. But if that happens, may I choose repentance and Jesus over somehow fighting to hang out and get to keep doing this in a way that turns my soul away from him. And they chose uprightness. He says, and turned many from iniquity. 
Good pastoring involves telling people they're wrong. Good pastoring involves pointing to the Bible and saying this is sin. Around the time that we were walking through our Theology of Sex series and Spencer was up here and he was walking through and he was going to a passage where he says, do not be deceived. And he was talking through sin and sexual sin and he was calling it out and he was confessing and bringing you in on his story and repenting. There were churches all around the U.S. that were saying about that same issue, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not really sin. There's a high-profile church recently that said, yeah, it's not ideal. It's not God's favorite, but it's okay. And the church is meant to stand in the Bible and say, this is what it says and this is what we hold to. And if you want to be a pastor because you want people to like you, you will at some point have to choose. Say what the Bible says or be liked. Y'all, there are times where we know, we know y'all, we love y'all. There are times where we know, all right, we're about to tick these people off. <laughs> we know some of the things you want to hear and some of the things you don't want to hear. Sometimes we're pleasantly surprised. A lot of times we handle it really well. But we also, we know what we could get up. I mean, we could write like a, a, a sermon that y'all would all just be like, yeah, but it might not line up with the Bible. We can avoid things or we can say them. It's one of the reasons why we teach straight through books of the Bible. So that we don't have to deal with that tension of not wanting to go to places and just secretly not go to them. We just work our way through the Bible and then we go, you know, Spencer and I paper, rock, scissors, who's going to have to say it? <laughs> we don't do that. But we have walked in before and said, did I really pick this passage? I picked this one? I'm like, yeah, you were amped up about it. I don't know. All right. I lost my train of thought, y'all. <laughs> he turned many away from iniquity. Verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. That's one of the hopes of pastoring, is that you would know your Bible, you'd walk in wisdom and humility, and you'd be genuinely helpful. You, you, should, you should be in a place where you want to talk to your pastors and ask some questions and try to get some instruction and some wisdom and some help. It's one of the joys of pastoring where we get to help people think through things and work through things. But that should be a, a thing that you would look for and desire and that it should happen, that they'd be people who knew their Bibles, knew, uh, had some wisdom and could help you instruct and keep people away from sin and moving forward well in life. Then it says this, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's really interesting when you're reading this. You read the commentaries on it. This is the only place that priests are ever called messengers of the Lord of hosts. That's a phrase that's only ever used for prophets. People that spoke, thus saith the Lord. And it's saying, well, this is true of those who worked in the priesthood. And the reason is, is because they knew their Bibles and they stood in place and said, this is what God would have you do. This is what God would have you respond. This is the type of sacrifice that you should have in this moment. That they stood and spoke on behalf of the Lord. And that is a weighty honor. It's a divine honor that I get to stand here and open the Bible and say, this is what it says. It's a divine honor, but I, I got to take it seriously. Our church needs to take it seriously. Pastors, take it seriously. If you ever, if those men, if we're able to send them out, we'd love to. We'd love to send them out. We'd love to plant churches. We'd love to install some of them in our church family. And we'd love to be men that take all of this very seriously. That speaking on behalf of the Lord would be a weighty thing that was not flippantly done.
So he says, you've turned aside, you've run off, chased sin, and there's a way to do that in pastoring. And James says that not many should be teachers because they'll be held to a higher standard. And by God's grace, he'll protect our church family, he'll protect our pastors. We'll get to send more pastors out, we'll get to plant more churches, and we'll be men of integrity who fear the Lord. And may he help us do that. But priests in the Old Testament is not a one-to-one translation to pastors in the church because the whole church is now the priesthood. There's no mediator between you and God except for Christ. And so 1 Peter 2 says this, You, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim that you may. So we belong to him, we're a priesthood, so that the church, that's the you there, that you, the church, may proclaim the excellence of him, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every Sunday we finish by saying you are commissioned, you're empowered by the Spirit to go and do that. Proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you get to do what Malachi is talking about to a a world that doesn't know him. You get to know your Bible. You get to hate sin, and you get to tell people, be reconciled to God. So we all should take this call seriously. And sometimes we say things like, well, I just don't know how to do that. That doesn't exempt you. Learn how to do it. Start reading your Bible. Start practicing. Y'all know we, we practice. I, pr- I practice this. Trying to articulate the gospel in different situations. And not just, it's something you work at. And so if you're struggling with that, we'd love to help you. But we would love for our whole church to be proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and taking seriously the opportunity to be messengers on behalf of the Lord so that we might see more people come to know him. And he is excellent, and he did call you out of darkness. So we should tell people. And if we don't know how to tell people, we should practice and tell people. And if you tell somebody and you didn't do it right, go back to them later and say, I didn't say that right. Round two. We should take it seriously. But y'all... We need to consider Christ because he is the great high priest of our faith and he's the one who perfectly accomplishes this and upheld the covenant. So we read earlier and he said, because I'm going to keep my covenant, it's basically what he's saying, I'm going to uphold my covenant, therefore I'm going to do this. Well, how does he do that? What, What happens here? How does he uphold the covenant in the middle of their corruption and rejection? which is a very pertinent question for everybody because we have all corrupted and rejected our place before the Lord as humans. And there's an offer of redemption, but one of the questions is, how does he do that? How does he offer redemption? What does he do? First of all, I want you to see that Jesus perfectly fulfills this. He walks in awe, verse 5. He works in awe of the Lord and fear of the Lord. That's what he does when he's here. True instruction is in his mouth. He is the truth. He speaks the truth. When you read the words of Jesus, you're reading truth and veracity that you can build your life off of. He walked in peace and uprightness that Jesus never sinned. He turned many from iniquity. He guards knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. And he is the, capital T, messenger 
of the Lord of hosts, the one who comes to proclaim good news to us. So Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of what the priesthood was meant to be. And then Hebrews tells us this. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He's the one who becomes part of the awful and is carried out and cast out and rejected. He didn't deserve to be. He hadn't corrupted the covenant, but he took the punishment of the corrupted covenant on himself so that he might uphold the covenant. And that's the gospel news for us. I didn't check, but I don't think any of y'all are Levites. But what you are, are sinners who need someone to take what you deserve, which is to be cast out. None of us have the right to walk into the temple. None of us have the right, if it still existed, to go into the most holy place. We would be struck down. We're not welcome there. Not only are we not welcome there because we're not Levites, we're not welcome there in our sin and our rejection and our rebellion of God. But Jesus is the one who was cast out so that we might be brought in. That's what it says, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. He's the one who took the punishment we deserve so that we might be ordained, sanctified, brought in, and welcomed. 13, verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So author of Hebrews says, he did that so that we could belong to him. Let's go join him. Let's go join him. And if you say, well, it'll be weird. If I, if I go, if I take seriously this idea that I'm going to go bring this message, that I'm going to go participate, people might not like me. Yeah, let's bear the reproach he endured. It might make some of my friendships weird. Let's bear the reproach he endured. It, it might make things awkward at the office. I don't know if I can do that. I'm just not sure if that's the place. Well, let's bear the reproach that he endured. Four, this is why we would do that. Here, we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. We're all called to represent the Lord. By God's grace, some of us are going to try to say, I, I want to give full-time energy and effort towards that in mission work and in the church. But we're all called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And all of us are going to stand before the king. And may we be people who live in fear and awe, looking forward to that city. There's a way to pastor that's about right here, and there's a way to live our lives that's about right here. It's about our place in this city. But this isn't our city. We've got one that's coming. So may we live as a group of people who look forward to that. And who our lives, our decisions, our wallets, our time make sense as we stand before the Lord on that day. You're standing before people right now, which means that some of the things you're doing ought not make sense to them. It should only make sense when you're standing before him. We don't want to live in a way that makes sense now and makes no sense there. 
So let's go to Jesus to be covered by his blood and to be welcomed. That's done by him. And then let's walk with him, taking whatever reproach comes, looking forward to that city. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Have mercy on us. Move through your spirit so that we might look forward to that city, that we might walk in fear and awe, and that we might delight in the fact that you are the one who upholds the covenant. You're the one who was cast out so that we can be brought in. And so may we rejoice in your name and praise your name. And Lord, I pray for myself, Spencer, Matt, Raz. Help us to fear you more than we fear people. Help us to turn away from sin. And by your grace, keep us faithful. And cover us in mercy. And that day we stand before you. And God, may you bless this church that we would send out more pastors and more church planners and more missionaries that would labor for you, that would run from sin. And in the day when we're choosing between hiding or running to you, may we not hide so that at the end of all this, we have you as our inheritance and not ministry and not praise, nothing but you. And may that be true for our entire church family, that at the end of all of this, we get Jesus or it's been a waste. We ask this in your name and we thank you for your blood. Amen.